0: comes by. We're in 1st John chapter 4, the first six verses today, and uh, this is a very difficult passage. It's one where you have to read it a couple times to try to understand it. Um, but I think ultimately it has somewhat of a simple message. So let's take our time and read it and go through it and hear what God has to say to us. Uh, this morning, First John chapter four, verses one through six. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God: every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would illuminate our hearts, open our minds, that we might hear it, apply it, live by it, and most of all, believe it, and that we might repeat it to ourselves. Use it in us this day, in Jesus' name, amen. Paul Tripp uh, has devoted much of his life to biblical counseling. He is one of the uh, counselors involved with the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation and a uh, prolific author, speaker. And he's written one of the best books there is on the topic of counseling called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, People in Need of Change Helping People in Need of Change. Um, And if you have borrowed that book, I'd love for you to return it. Um, It's a great book. And Paul Tripp is a very effective curate, a physician of the soul. And recently I came across the following insight in Paul's writing. And I want you to listen carefully as Paul Tripp describes the most influential voice in your life. He says... I find myself saying it all the time. When people hear it, they laugh, but actually I'm being quite serious when I say it. Here it is. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. You are in an unending conversation with yourself. You're talking to yourself all the time, interpreting, organizing, and analyzing what's going on inside you and around you. You may be talking to yourself about why you feel so tired or maybe you woke up this morning with a sense of dread and you're not sure why. Perhaps you're reliving a conversation that didn't go too well or maybe you're preparing yourself for another conversation that may be difficult by conjuring up as many renditions as you can so you can uh, cover all the contingencies. Maybe your mind has traveled back to your distant past And for reasons you don't understand, you're recalling events from your early childhood. The point is that you're constantly involved in an internal conversation that greatly influences the things you decide, say, and do. What do you regularly tell yourself about yourself, about God, and about your circumstances? Do your words to you encourage faith, hope, and courage? Or do your words to you stimulate doubt, discouragement, and fear? Do you remind yourself that God is near? Or do you reason within yourself, given your circumstances, that he must be distant? Do you encourage yourself to run to God even when you don't understand what he's doing? Or do you give yourself permission to back away from him when you're confused by the seeming distance between what he's promised and what you're experiencing? When others talk to you, is your internal conversation so loud it's hard to concentrate on what they're saying? So here's the question. How wholesome, faith-driven, and Christ-centered is the conversation that you have with you every day? And I read that, and I thought it was fascinating because I think he's right. We talk to ourselves all the time, at least I do, and I really hope you do too. And I'm not the only one. <laughs> I often talk to myself out loud. Or my wife will look at me and apparently my lips are moving and no sound is coming out. And she's kind of like, what is going on? You are in an unending conversation with yourself. And it never ceases. And it began when you woke up this morning and it will continue until you fall asleep tonight. And it's actually taking place within you right now even as I speak. And this morning we're going to consider and examine this unending conversation taking place within yourself each and every day. And even though this conversation is constantly taking place within us, rarely do we examine this conversation or rarely do we evaluate the content of this conversation. We don't uh, often consider the influence this conversation has upon our lives And most of us don't consider this unending conversation as significant or serious or ultimately influential. But we're mistaken because this internal conversation has the most influence on your soul each and every day. You're more influenced by this internal conversation than you are by your parents, your pastors, your friends, your teachers, your circumstances, and at times even more than God and His Word. And apart from God's activity in our lives each day, this conversation and the content of this conversation is a difference maker in your soul each and every day. There's a direct relationship between the content of this unending internal conversation and the state of your soul every day. So examining and evaluating the content of this internal conversation in light of Holy Scripture... And informing the conversation with the content of Holy Scripture and the gospel can, and by God's grace will, make all the difference in your soul and in your life. And in 1 John chapter 4, we have this unique opportunity of listening in on what the Apostle John thinks is important for our life. And therefore most important for this ongoing internal conversation. And John gives us some unique filters that we need so we can rightly examine and evaluate not only uh, what we're confronted with from the outside, but also use those same filters to examine and evaluate this unending conversation taking place in our soul. Most every commentator tells us that this is really the doctrinal test that he's been leading up to. And it applies to everything that assaults us from the world. But no one tells us to apply this test to ourselves. No one tells us to apply these filters to our own thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. And since John starts by telling us this really strange phrase, he says, do not believe every spirit. It's an internal matter. I think it applies to what goes on on the inside, as well as to what comes in from the outside. So let's dive into this text. John starts by telling us about the need for discernment. That should be the first blank there. Uh, Verse 1, the need for discernment. He says, "Beloved, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, spirituality can be powerful for good, but it can also be a tool for deception. There's a lot of people who aren't Christians, but who are very spiritual. And that cuts both ways. It can be a tool for good. It can be a tool for deception. And what else should we expect? I mean, only good money is counterfeited. Martin Luther once said, the devil is the ape of God. The devil imitates God. So the Bible teaches us to be alert to all deception. And it teaches us to welcome all gospel power. God wants us to be both cautious and open. That can be hard to do sometimes. On the one hand, the Bible tells us to believe. We saw that last week in 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. So last week we got a command to believe. And the gospel creates believers who eagerly swallow the truth whole. On the other hand, the Bible tells us not to believe right here in this verse. It says, Beloved, do not believe. And the Bible creates believers who are also skeptics. We're not setting ourselves up to be everyone else's judge and jury But God wants us to know when we can open our hearts with enthusiasm and when we need to sort of hold things off at a distance. He wants us to be discerning. And this matters here at Potomac Hills. I mean, if all we wanted was routine blessing, we'd we'd never need discernment. But God wants us to go further with Him than we've ever gone before, and we've only begun to see His goodness. So as God increases His blessing, we need discernment. God has given us lots of answers. And a key passage in the Bible for discerning the true work of God is right here in 1 John 4. And John gives us three very key filters for discerning what is of God and what is true versus what is not from God and what isn't true. And whenever we see a church or a denomination or a movement that passes through these three tests, these filters, we know God's there. It will be imperfect in some ways. It may be imperfect in a lot of ways, but God is there. So let's think this through. This verse says, again, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, there were a lot of false prophets in Old Testament times, and I believe there's a lot of false prophets today. And John's saying, don't be fooled. Ask probing questions. Ask the second and third follow-up questions until you know for sure. That's why our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, has very clear standards for ministers and officers. The Westminster Confession of Faith. And a couple of years from now, after he finishes school and takes Hebrew and writes a theological paper and writes an exegesis paper and preaches some more... Dave Dorst is going to have to go through what we call, uh, what the book of church order calls, trials for ordination. Normally we say an ordination exam, but the book of church order actually lists it as trials for ordination. It's very fitting. And it says that trials for nation shall consist of a careful examination as to, one, his acquaintance with experiential religion, especially his personal character and family management based on the qualifications set out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Two, his knowledge of the Greek and Hebrew languages. Three, Bible content. That's probably the hardest because you either know it or you don't. Four, theology. Surprisingly, that's usually the easiest because if you're good with words, you can kind of get around stuff. Five, sacrament. Six, church history. Seven, the history of the Presbyterian Church in America. And eight, the principles and rules of the government and discipline of the church. And he'll have to take a lengthy closed book exam on all of the above and then take a lengthy oral exam in front of our credentials committee composed of nine other elders who all know more than he does. And I think that even if we took out all the PCA-specific stuff, the vast majority of pastors in Loudoun County couldn't pass our ordination exam. It's tough. And it's tough for a reason because those of us who already passed it want everyone else to suffer just as much as we did. (laughs) And that's not it. The real reason it's tough because this theology is the good housekeeping seal of approval for Presbyterian leaders. God knows what he stands for, and we want to line up with him as best as we can. doesn't mean we do it perfectly or that we always get it right, but we're trying to do it as best as we can. And before we endorse anyone else, we test them. God cares about what we teach our children, what we teach our church, what we teach in Sunday school at every age level. What is taught on Sunday morning? He cares more than we do. And I think that's why this verse starts with, Beloved, because love asks the right questions. In this verse, John is also implying our responsibility to protect the world from the bad influences that emerge from within the church. It's not how we usually think about it, is it? We usually think about we got to protect ourselves from all the bad stuff out there. That's not what John says here. We have to protect out there from the bad stuff in here. He says, for many false prophets have gone out from the church into the world. It's not so much about false prophets coming into the church from the world, just the opposite. It's about false prophets coming out of the church into the world. I think of the, uh, the Ring Rios and the Lord of the Rings movies, you know, the bad guys riding the black horses. It's a good metaphor for false prophets going out into the world and destroying people's lives. False Christianity destroys. And we owe it to the whole world to be clear about what we stand for. But in reality, nobody steps up and says, oh, I'm a false prophet. I'm out to ruin everything. So John is giving us filters for discernment. And if any church or movement passes through these filters, we know God is there. So let's start with the first filter, uh, verses 2 and 3, the Son of God, the Son of God. He says there, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And a lot of people think that verse is about the Antichrist, and it's not. That verse is about confessing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's the main point there. And this first filter is theological. John is saying the Holy Spirit is in good theology. By this you know the Spirit of God. We love the freedom of the Holy Spirit, but he's always true to himself. The Bible calls him the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of knowledge, Isaiah 11.2. Calls him the Spirit of truth, John 14 and John 15. The Old Testament prophesied that the Spirit would anoint the Messiah with a message of Of good news, Isaiah 61. The Holy Spirit is in good theology and nowhere else. And the Holy Spirit doesn't anoint just a part of us, He's better than that. He anoints the fullness of our beings, including our minds. How could it be otherwise? Our minds are the gatekeepers for our hearts. Along comes some idea, knocks on the door of our soul. May I come in and take over? And we say, oh, that would never happen to me. But, uh, you know, it's just a couple years ago, the whole Da Vinci Code craze went through and just seemed to be knocking people over in the church, even though it was all baloney and nonsense and made up and not exactly well written. But people who were Christians a long time said, oh, I don't know about all that. And they allowed that to come in and take over their thinking. It happens all the time. And God has given us our minds to deal with those questions and those challenges. And he wants us to use our minds to test those ideas and to ask the right theological questions. And if it passes the test, then God says, let it in, it's for me, go for it. But if that idea coming at us doesn't pass the test, God wants us to say, no way. Stay away, stay out. And the power of the Holy Spirit is in good theology. And what is that good theology we have right here? The first filters, the Son of God, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That, I could go off on that sentence for the rest of the day, but here are just two truths, big truths, about Jesus that come out of this verse, this phrase, and that define authentic Christianity. Both truths are embedded in this these words, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. First truth, big one. Jesus existed before he lived on earth. He sent us many signals he came from somewhere else. John eight twenty three. He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And then later in that same chapter, John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Nobody else can talk that way. But Jesus doesn't belong to time. He belongs to eternity because he's God. And that's the first truth, the deity of Christ. Christ. So whenever you want to discern things, one of the things you need to, to discern is what do these people say about Jesus? Do they hold to his full divinity? Secondly, the flip side uh, of that truth is the humanity of Christ. The Word became flesh, fully and sinlessly human. We have that in John 1.14. He wasn't just disguised as a human being. He was truly human. He got thirsty, he got tired, he slept. God became crucifiable in Jesus. I'm not sure that's even a word, but it works and it's understandable. God became crucifiable. Now, the Apostle John is speaking against a heresy in his time called doceticism, from a Greek word that means to seem. And this heresy taught that Jesus only seemed human. He didn't really come down to our level. When he walked along those dusty roads in Palestine, apparently he didn't leave footprints. And they really struggle with this idea of how could God become flesh, yucky, messy, smelly flesh. But asceticism is a heresy. It doesn't understand the gospel at all. The gospel says Jesus came down as the perfect human being that we had always failed to be. There's nothing about us he can't redeem, including the messiest parts of us. So we'll love and enjoy and confess all that Christ is. Not a whittled-down Christ, but a big, authentic Christ. And we'll worship him with clear theology. He identifies with us in all of our need. Why shouldn't we confess him in all of his fullness? And we're not spinning our own hybrid theology that nobody's ever thought of before. We're not asking the question, what is God saying today? What we care about is what God said to the church 2,000 years ago through the apostles, recorded forever in the Scripture. Polycarp was one of the famous early church fathers. He was actually a a very close friend of the apostle John and a, a disciple of John. He knew John personally. He wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. And uh, this isn't in Scripture, this is just from Polycarp. But he quoted this verse of uh, 1 John 4, uh, verses 2 and 3. And he said, Whoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. Well, that's pretty clear. Why is he so blunt? Because apart from Jesus come in the flesh, we have no Savior. All we have are pseudo Saviors. And John says that's the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now in the world already. There's an evil power that not only opposes Christ, it also counterfeits Christ. The anti part of that word Antichrist means not only against Christ, but also instead of Christ. The dark power is already at work in the world today, opposing Christ by offering various counterfeits. And where do we see that? We see it wherever Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, is falsified. Then there's denominations where he's denied. There's a uh, denomination in our country that just in June at their General Assembly, they have a similar name to ours, where they had a theologian stand up in front of the whole General Assembly and say, we really need to get the cross out of our faith. You know, because it's just so bloody and violent and bad and we don't need that anymore. And I read that and I was like, oh God, have mercy on them. I'm amazed they're all still alive. There's no neutrality. It's either Christ or Antichrist. And everybody has a decision to make. It's the one thing we see over and over again in John's letters He's very blunt. We always call him the disciple that Jesus loved and think he's this gentle, meek, mild guy. And yet, when you read him, he's the toughest guy there is. He makes Peter look like a wimp. He's saying, you know, it's God or not God, choose wisely now. And you can pretty much summarize all of his writings just that way. And here's the first filter. Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners, fully God and fully man. So in that unending internal conversation, what are you saying to yourself about Jesus? Are you listening to what the world says about Jesus? Or are you telling yourself in this internal conversation what the Scripture says about Christ? John says there's no neutrality. You're either for Christ or against Christ, even if you're trying to tell yourself otherwise. Now, having established that first filter of Jesus, he moves on to the second filter, verse 4, the power of God. Verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's a great verse. We're just little children before the spiritual powers fighting over this world. But Jesus is the most powerful force at work in the world today. He said, John sixteen thirty three, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. The second filter for assessment, for discernment, is this world-overcoming power of God. In any church that confesses the biblical Christ and is lifting people above this world to live for Him, that influence can only be from God. If Jesus is the greatest power in the world today, how can Christians be negative and defensive and circle the wagons? The future belongs to Christ, and it's going to be great. Why should we feel insecure and frustrated and angry? Do we believe in Jesus or not? Christians shouldn't be wringing their hands and saying, what's this world coming to? We should be saying, look what's coming to this world. Wherever you see this world overcoming confidence in Jesus, you're looking at authentic Christianity. But what does John mean by this phrase? He says, you are from God and have overcome them. Is he saying that we should dominate unbelievers? I don't think so. I think what he's talking about, if you take all of 1 John together, he's talking about the worldview, the sort of ethos that's out there in the world, all those things that stand against Christ, but not necessarily the big dramatic things that are easy to point out really subtle things that we kind of like you know the every day you and i are being told in a million different ways that true life is in being young fit sexually active successful popular rich and envied that's the world we overcome and we overcome by not believing that anymore We overcome by enjoying Christ above all else. Jesus died because we had to be young, fit, sexually active, successful, popular, rich, and envied. From his cross, he says, that's what the world's lie has cost me. Nothing gets our hearts off the values of this world like the cross. And Christians prize Christ far above all the most expensive, most brilliant, most popular deceptions of this world. That's the second filter. The power of God is active in your life or it's not. You're overcoming the things of the world by believing the things of God or you're being overcome by the things of the world and therefore not believing the things of God. So what are you saying to yourself in this unending internal conversation about believing that Jesus is greater than all the day-to-day pressures of everyday life? Are you listening to what the world says about what you have to have? Or are you telling yourself in that internal conversation what the Scripture says about who you have to have? Once again, no neutrality. It's what you have to have Or it's who you have to have. Jesus. But many of us inside the church subtly, without even realizing it, deny Christ by trying to have it both ways. We want the who and we want the what too. And John says... It's not going to work that way. You can have Jesus or you can have everything the world offers. That's the second filter, the overcoming power of God. He sets that when he moves on to the third filter, verses 5 and 6, the message of God. So you have three filters, the Son of God, the power of God, and the message of God. Verses 5 and 6. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John's still talking about the false uh, prophets. He notices how successful they are. Why do they catch on? Because they tell people what they want to hear. Error is glad to use God talk, Jesus talk but it only echoes the deepest values of the world it redefines Jesus more to the world's liking it offers the rewards of this world plus Jesus too you know I've met a lot of people who really like the salvation that Jesus offers they get really jazzed about the whole forgiveness thing It's when you get to the repentance and sin thing, they're not quite so excited about that part. Let's just focus on the positives. Getting me out of trouble. That's not real Christianity. And false Christianity requires no surrender, No repentance, no faith, no reinvestment of our emotions in Christ. So who really speaks for Christ? The Apostle John writes, he says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And the we here are the official teachers in the early church, the apostles. They found Christ to be better than this whole world. And all of them but John who we just don't know about for sure but all the rest of them church history tells us proved the surpassing worth of Christ through martyrdom and the whoever in that is anyone whose heart's opens to Christ I love that passage Phoebe read this morning during worship Psalm 73 who have I in heaven but you I had no idea she was going to read that verse but I have it down here There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. If our hearts even flicker with that flame, the Holy Spirit's at work. And John is saying loyalty to that message, it makes no sense from the world's point of view. If you tell the world, there is nothing on earth I desire besides Jesus, they're going to say, what is wrong with you? But it makes sense when we dial in the promises of God. And any church today that reproduces that apostolic confidence in the life that's really life, that's real religion. That's real Christianity. And, and that Christianity cherishes a clear view of Christ, overcomes the for, false values of the world, and gets us living for eternity. You know, one of the the big red flags, the... Uh, signs of a false church is when it says we're the only true church when you hear that red flags and buzzers and bells ought to be going off all over the place because god is love his churches love each other they're presbyterian and anglican and charismatic and baptist and so on and so forth they're black and white asian and slavic Uh, In a true church there's a generous spirit of love todd led us in prayer about that talked about our own diversity And we admire other churches as being in Christ. And we speak well of them. They aren't perfect and neither are we. But we have to love this way. Even when we disagree with one another. Because God doesn't love us because we deserve it. He loves us because he is love. And why is our love for one another and for all Christians everywhere so important to God? Because in this brutal world, it isn't easy to believe in the love of God. And he's calling us, his church, to be living proof that his love is more real than human brutality. And through us, he displays his beauty before a skeptical world. And we don't love anyone by compromising the truth. That's not love. And John is giving us a series of filters here, and we have to take them all together. Because even love can be faked. But real love prizes a clear view of Christ, sees through the fraudulence of the world, relocates its happiness in eternity, and then with that kind of clear conscience, which Rich talked to us about last week, loves other Christians even though they have all sorts of problems of their own. And who doesn't have problems? But the love of God stretches us beyond our own preferences and gets us cheering for people who may be very different from us, but God is among them. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, you have the right to judge the churches you see. And God even gives you the criteria by which to judge them. And you owe nothing to false Christianity. But God judges you too because he's watching to see how you respond to his true church. Imperfect as it is. Because he is there. God is calling you to come to Christ and then to stoop so low that you join a true church. These people aren't beneath him. If you're too good for the church, then you're too good for Christ. So there's a call to humility to humble yourself. If you're a believer, God wants you to know that your flawed but faithful church has the smile of heaven upon it. The church isn't a human complication keeping Jesus from you. It's God's primary delivery system to give you more of Jesus. Your church comes from God. His love is sharing with you His most precious possession in the universe, His blood-bought church. And if you give your heart away first to Christ, then to your church, then to the church's mission in the world, your life will matter forever. Because you're part of the real work of God in this generation. So what message are you listening to? Are you listening to the promises of the world? Or are you telling yourself in that unending internal conversation what the scripture says about the promises of God? And once again, no neutrality here. It's the promises of the world. Versus the promises of God. You can't believe them both. You can't have it both ways. Many people try. That has left more lives just wrecked by the side of the road. They want spiritual revival hand in hand with economic revival. And truth be told, you don't want them to choose between the two. Because often they'll choose the wrong way. Some of you may be aware of the Lakeland Revival that's been going on this year in Lakeland, Florida. It's been a huge revival involving a Canadian evangelist that's drawn crowds of up to 10,000 people a night. It's been going on since the spring. Um, It's gotten kind of small now. It seems to have gone horribly wrong. It's been a big debate whether this qualifies as a true revival or not. But it's recently, in the last week or two, come out that this evangelist has taken in millions of dollars and uh, he's not able to account for all of the money. And numerous journalists have begun investigations into his claims for many, many, many miraculous he- he- healings, uh, even claims to have raised some people from the dead. Uh, we just can't find any of them. And they for some reason, they haven't been able to substantiate any of these miracles. And, oh, he was suspended this week from the revival because he's apparently decided it's okay to leave his wife. And it's all so sad. And there's somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter of a million people have listened to him in the last six to nine months. Lee Grady is a respected editor of Charisma magazine. It's one of the main charismatic magazines. And he wrote a lament and a critique of this Lakeland revival. So this is sort of within the camp. And it's now, the the whole thing is in a a tailspin over this guy's announced separation from his wife. And so Lee Grady wrote this summons to pray for the church, to pray for our nation. He says, all that's well and good. But among his uh, very commendable questions and observations are these. And I just picked out four. There was probably 20 in his article, which is now being plastered all over uh, the web, um, he says, "Among those who jumped on the Lakeland bandwagon, discernment was discouraged." This whole passage is about discernment. Everything John is telling us in First John is about discernment. He says they were expected to swallow and follow. There's a soundbite. The message was clear: This is God. Don't question. I blame this lack of discernment, partly on raw zeal for God. We're spiritually hungry, which can be a good thing, but sometimes hungry people will eat anything. He also says, Many of us would rather watch a noisy demonstration of miracle signs and wonders than have a quiet Bible study. Yet we are faced today with the sad reality that our untempered zeal is a sign of immaturity. Our adolescent craving for the wild and crazy makes us do stupid things. It's way past time for us to grow up. Third thing, he says, true revival will be accompanied by brokenness, humility, reverence, and repentance, not the arrogance, showmanship, and empty hype that was on display in Lakeland. And then fourth and finally, he said, a prominent Pentecostal evangelist, he doesn't name him, called me this week after all this news became public. He said to me, I'm now convinced that a large segment of the church, or he says specifically the charismatic church, will follow the antichrist when he shows up because they have no discernment. Ouch. Hopefully, he writes, we'll learn our lesson this time and apply the necessary caution when an imposter shows up. And writing on this whole mess, John Piper, the Reformed Baptist, Uh, Guy, he writes that charismatics will not be the only ones who follow the Antichrist when he rises. So will the mass of those who today in thousands of evangelical churches belittle the truth of biblical doctrine as God's agent to set us free. Discernment is not created by brokenness, humility, reverence, and repentance. It's created by biblical truth and the application of that biblical truth by the power of the Holy Spirit to our hearts and minds. When that happens, then the brokenness, humility, reverence, and repentance will have the strong fiber of the full counsel of God in them, and they'll be profoundly Christian and not merely religious or emotional or psychological. The common denominator of those who follow Antichrist won't be charismatic or any other label or any other denomination. It will be, as the Apostle Paul says, they refused to love the truth. He says that in Second Thessalonians 2. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The test for any revival, the test for any denomination or group or movement or church is always first Doctrinal, theological, expositional, in that it's based on the Scripture. Is this awakening? Is this movement? Is this anything that happens in Christianity being carried along by a, quote, love for the truth, the passion to hear the whole counsel of God proclaimed? Or is it simply because we've told ourselves and convinced ourselves that we can have it all and we can have it both ways? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, it would be so easy to point fingers at another group, another movement, another place, but we are so susceptible to all the same things. We want what the world tells us we should have, whether it's money or health or anything. And those things crowd Jesus out of our lives. Lord, help us to desire Christ more than anything else. Help us look to Christ first. Help us to use these filters, not just for all the stuff outside, but also for our own life, for our our own conversation that's going on all the time. Lord, I pray that you would bring humility and reverence and repentance to us. They would characterize our life because we're focused on Jesus and not ourselves. And yet, Lord, I know that's so hard to do. We'll fall in the same trap as, as many others without the power of your Spirit working in our life. So we pray this morning for that overcoming power of God to be active in our lives, that we would not believe the lies of the world, but the truth of the Scripture, the truth of God's Word. Make that happen in us. Give us the faith to believe what you say. We ask that you would do this for us by the power of your Spirit, for the honor of Christ, and for the glory of your name. Amen.